welcome to Made in India SLP podcast with your host Kinari and Rabab. Welcome to Made in India SLP everyone. In today's episode we will be conversing with Dr. Siva Priya Santanam, an experienced clinician, professor and researcher in the field of communication sciences and disorders. So Rabab, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest for today? Definitely. It is my honor to introduce Dr. Santanam. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Speech Language Hearing Sciences at Metropolitan State University of Denver. She currently directs the Integrated Supports for Students with Autism in College program at her university where she provides both one-on-one and group-based support for autistic young adults or should I say young adults with autism. She has worked in a variety of clinical settings, including early intervention, home-based settings, schools, children's hospital in Colorado, as well as in university settings, conducting autism diagnostic evaluations, as well as intervention. Dr. Santanam's research broadly focuses on developing, implementing, as well as evaluating strength-based and support-based interventions for adults on the autism spectrum and promoting equity in access to communication for children on the autism spectrum, their families, as well as focusing on diverse cultural and linguistic backgrounds. Dr. Santanam has co-authored several peer-reviewed articles on assessment and intervention considerations for children and young adults on the autism spectrum. She serves on the Cultural and Linguistic Diversity Committee of the International Society for Autism Research and in other professional and community-based organizations that focus on supporting individuals with autism. Dr. Santanam completed her bachelor's and master's degree in audiology and speech-language pathology from Sri Ramchandra Institute of Higher Education and Research in Chennai, India, and her doctorate in communication sciences and disorders with a special focus in autism spectrum disorders from Bowling Green State University, Ohio, in the United States of America. She then went on to complete her interdisciplinary postdoctoral work at the University of Colorado Medical Campus. Dr. Santanam, it's great to have you on our show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Rabab and Kinnery. I think you both are doing such a wonderful podcast series, and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. As SLPs, we often come across clients on the autism spectrum on our caseload. So before we even dive into the topic of the day, we have compiled a few statements relating to autism, and maybe you can help address some of the common myths and misconceptions. So I'll start with the first statement. People on autism spectrum do not like to have friends. Well, thank you so much, Kinnery, for starting with these common myths or misconceptions. I think it's so important because one, it is important for our society to understand what autism is, but it's more important for people like ourselves who are service providers like speech language pathologists, audiologists, and our other interprofessionally, you know, interprofessional collaborators like psychologists and occupation therapists and such. 
I'm, I'm glad we're discussing this topic. So one of the common myths, like you said, people on the autism spectrum do not like to have friends. It obviously it's a myth, right? So they do like to have friends just like everybody else. Um, people on the autism spectrum uh, are just like everyone else who are not on the autism spectrum. So some people on the autism spectrum may have one or two friends whom they feel that they're really close to and someone whom they can really trust. Others may have many friends, and there might be others who are still looking for someone whom they can truly trust and have a trustworthy relationship with. But the fact is that all people on the autism spectrum like to have and want to have friends just like everybody else does. People on the autism spectrum do not or cannot understand the emotions of others and themselves are unable to feel or express emotions. Yeah, this one I hear quite a bit. I hear um, sometimes even people who work with individuals on the autism spectrum say things like people on the autism spectrum lack empathy, they don't have emotions, they don't know how to understand emotions and things like that. Again, a huge, huge misconception. One thing we have to understand is that the, the notion that that autistic individuals lack empathy has been propagated for quite a while. So, you know, one cannot be surprised that this misconception exists. Lack empathy uh, also relates to lack of ability to understand or express emotions. Now, I'm going to talk about a very relatively new and interesting concept called the double empathy problem. This was proposed by Milton, and he is a researcher who is an autistic person himself, and he's from the UK. So he uh, puts forth this very interesting and very useful way of looking at people on the autism spectrum. So communication, as we all know, is a two-way stream, right? So if we, we need two people to communicate. So when we say that people on the autism spectrum lack empathy and don't have the right emotional expression, that just means that we do not, as a non-autistic person, do not understand maybe how uh, the person on the autism spectrum communicates and how they express emotions. So it's a two-way process. So maybe we don't understand how they express um, emotions and, and we are probably lacking the empathy to understand them. So we cannot always say that people on the autism spectrum are always at fault when there is a communication breakdown and that they lack empathy but it is more of a two-way stream where we need to work as hard as they work in understanding each other. So I believe that people on the autism spectrum work really, really hard to understand people who are not like themselves, people who are not on the autism spectrum. So I think it's our job as, as a non-autistic person to put in as much effort or at least half the effort to understand a person on the autism spectrum. So it's kind of a two-way a problem there. I had a patient, a child on the spectrum, and uh -huh. he just used to communicate in different ways. I feel right. like it was not that he didn't communicate. His right. way of communication was running after me. And that uh -huh. used to feel like a disruptive behavior, but that was uh -huh. just his emotional communication, you know. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So coming to the next one, Autistic children are aggressive. Yeah, wow. Um, 
That's a difficult one. Um, again, you know, huge myth that we propagate. Myths are dangerous, I think. Myths are super, super dangerous. It's okay mm-hmm. if we don't know about something. That's always much better than knowing a little bit about something and then spreading misinformation or spreading misconceptions. That's quite dangerous, especially in these days, you know, with all different sources of social media and the internet and everything just propagating things like this. So autistic children are aggressive. Oftentimes I get this comment from people. This even leads to situations where you you might have seen where autistic kids don't get invited to say a birthday party, for example, or um, they don't get friends to include them in their group activities or games or things like this. So um, I think it's, it's high time we change that. Um, like you just said, Rabab, all behavior is communicative mm-hmm. and an aggression is also some form of communication. It might not be verbal communication, but it is still a form of communication. And whenever um, I see kids on the autism spectrum aggress or, uh, you know, either towards themselves by injuring themselves or hurting themselves, or if they have an aggression that's directed to another person, I think one of the important questions we need to ask ourselves is, why is this kid doing that? Paying close attention to why this aggression is happening. I think once we start paying attention to that, we will learn that the child is trying to communicate something through his aggression. And when we listen and respond, to that communication, that aggression over time will begin to reduce. And that's when, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about AACs and alternative modalities of communication in a little bit, but that's a great situation where we know that a child needs a different modality of communication that might not always be speaking or the or the verbal modality. So I think that by believing that children or people on the autism spectrum are aggressive, we are creating and spreading um, a huge negative stigma associated with autism itself. By learning that we should pay attention and listen and ask why these aggressive behaviors happen, and they do happen only in some children and some people on the autism spectrum. They don't happen in everyone. So, um, and it doesn't happen every single day, not every single time. It's kind of on and off kind of thing when there's a clear reason, when something that a person on the autism spectrum wants or needs is taken away from them, or if they are not respected for who they are, then all of us will get aggressive. So um, I think we need to pay attention to that and ask others to pay attention to that as well. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I'll go to our next one, that autism yeah. only affects children. Uh-huh. Again, not true. I'm sure we'll talk about adults um, um, in, in, a, in another episode here, but uh, children on the autism spectrum grow up to be wonderful adults. Autism obviously is not something that is true of children. Characteristics of autism do not disappear over time. It is more of an identity. So strengths and challenges of a child on the autism spectrum may change with time, but Obviously, just like all of us, just like everybody else, children on the autism spectrum grow up to become adults. 
and some yeah. of them very successful and very happy adults as well. Mm-hmm. The last statement we uh, we compiled was autism is caused by a brain disorder. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've um, heard a lot of people um, talk about the brain being problematic in people on the autism spectrum. Again, there is truly no normal brain. There are all kinds of brains and all brains are different. This neurological variation is what we refer to as neurodiversity. And autism is one complex neurological variation. There are multiple other forms of neurological variation, and autism is one of them. When Judy Singer, she um, was the person who, when they proposed this term neurodiversity, they proposed it with the intention that human neurology can be very, very different from one person to another person. So obviously, Autism is not a disease. It is not something that a person is affected by within quotes. Um, and it is not a disorder that needs to be healed or fixed. And, and even the term, you'd have noticed, I, I use terms, uh, child on the autism spectrum or person on the autism spectrum or autistic person or autistic child. This has been a preference of the autism community. For a long, long time, we, especially in our professions, we've been taught to and um, and we've been using the person first language, you know, like person with autism, person with aphasia or something like that. Um, But that's changing among the disability community. And I always like to ask the person whom I'm speaking to, what would you like to be referred to? What would you like to be referred to as? And Um, I just go by whatever their preference is, but I like the neutral term, which is person on the autism spectrum, which is neither the person first language nor the identity first language. Uh, Thank you for talking about that, Dr. Santanam. I feel like there has been confusion about what to say. Like, I feel like I want to be respectful and identify and use a term that the community is comfortable with so thank you especially when I feel like I come from an adult medical different world so it's different at times so thank you for that thank you for dispelling those myths with us Um, now can we take a minute to discuss the prevalence of autism Uh, are more people diagnosed with autism now than they did let's say 40 years ago Wonderful question, isn't it? This is something every time I go to any um, social gathering party, anything, if the moment I say I work with people on the autism spectrum, someone in the crowd will ask me, so is autism increasing? So Mm. that's a common question that I get quite a bit. And I'm glad we're, we're talking about this. So in the last couple of decades, the awareness for autism has increased quite a bit. And thanks to professionals and thanks to a lot of parents and thanks to autistic individuals and autistic self-advocates themselves. So they have been responsible for creating a lot of awareness. Um, Now, one cannot be sure that there is a lot of understanding and acceptance of autism in our communities, but definitely there is awareness of autism. So in 2013, 
There was the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the fifth edition, which came about in the United States. Before that, you know, when I was in school, I have studied five different types um, of autism. But now we have one, uh, you know, umbrella label that comprises all the five different types. Now, um, like I said, oh, increased awareness is one of the main reasons that contributes to this um, increased prevalence. Um, the other reason I believe is one needs to look at how incidence and prevalence is measured. Um, we need to look at what age group of children have been looked at while measuring prevalence. We also need to look at which subsets of the population, you know, is it urban, rural, what type of cultural or ethnic backgrounds were looked at. These are things that we need to pay attention to when we study incidence and prevalence rates. And like I said, the DSM-5 criteria has contributed a lot to this, which appears like a sudden, which I don't think is sudden, it's more of a gradual increase in the rates. Right now um, in the United States, the rates are one in 54 children are diagnosed as a child on the autism spectrum. I believe as of 2014 or 2012, I remember reading a paper a while from India, I believe that is one in 100. That was a, a much more representative community-based sample was looked at in India. Those are obviously very different numbers from what, we've, what we know from previous years. And the DSM-5, I think, has been a great contributor because by combining all the different categories or subtypes that we had before in terms of diagnostic labels, what we have truly done is we are able to identify even children who might not in the past have come across as children with severe or high impact kind of needs. We talk about different levels in autism. The level three is requiring very substantial um, support. These are children or individuals who may have a high level of challenge in completing their daily activities without the support of another person. Level two is requiring substantial support. Level one is individuals who, who require um, support, but not substantial support. So um, in the past, we have been able to capture or been able to identify children and people in level three and level two quite effectively. Level one of individuals have often been missed out and often missed out not just um, in being diagnosed, but also in not receiving services in the public schools. One thing that I think is important is um, knowing that this gradual change has happened in incidence and prevalence, but also knowing that this is not something scary. It's not like, oh my gosh, this is a huge pandemic approaching us. It's not like COVID. There's nothing scary about it. It's just that we have to be aware that these changing diagnostic criteria and changes in awareness of autism has, has contributed a great deal to this increased incidence and prevalence. Would we say that even presence of greater standardized testing and better outreach and resources, like yeah. the availability of resources has helped in better diagnosis of 
ASD? I don't know if those have contributed to increased prevalence, but definitely they have contributed to having better methods to diagnose autism. Now, although I say that, I think we have decent methods to diagnose autism in the West with the English-speaking population and with populations that are mainstream, urban, or let's say white or Caucasian Americans, we don't have a lot of information or data as it relates to diagnosis, even for children from minority backgrounds within the U.S. itself. Now, when you look at India, the same article that I spoke about that discussed prevalence of autism in India, just a slightly older article, maybe about five to six years old, I will share that article in the link. That was one article where they discussed a tool for for diagnosing autism in the Indian population. Tools that are used here, the ADOS, which is the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, might not always apply and might not make sense for our um, children um, in India. Same way, um, you know, the Autism Diagnostic Interview Revised, which is another um, assessment that is used um, in the West, might not always be applicable in India again. So there mm-hmm. needs to have some kind of, you know, there needs to be some kind of adaptations or modifications that need to be made for the Indian population. And in India, you know, we have such diversity and we have so much difference in culture and language and education levels and strata of society and urban, rural, all kinds of differences. So it's, it's a very tricky work to do. And, and there's just immense amount of work that needs to be done within the Indian context. But answering your question, yeah, it could contribute to better diagnostic methods, but I don't know if it contributes to increased prevalence. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. So, um, Dr. Santanam, as we were talking about the prevalence and the incidence of autism, like one in 54 and one in 100 is a lot. Do you feel that all of the information that is available, obviously it's doing good with the diagnostics and everything, but do you feel that children are being misdiagnosed or overdiagnosed? Especially now we have category like level one, level Mm -hmm. two and level three, Mm -hmm. especially in younger children. As a clinician on field or even as a researcher, do you think there's more diagnosing happening now? There are a few more diagnostic evaluations and diagnostic clinics that exist, at least in the U.S. now. There are clinics that solely do just diagnostic evaluation. So in terms of number, um, even since I finished my doctoral studies the last five years, I have seen a rise in the number of clinics and centers that do diagnostic evaluations. But your question about, is there a chance for misdiagnosis? Definitely there. There are false positives and false negatives are common in every field. Although we say that the ADOS and the ADIR are quite reliable. And some centers or some clinics even have two coders because the ADOS, the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, is an observational assessment 
So we have a set of toys and activities that we have the child or the, per, the adult complete. And then obviously no toys for, for the adult, but there are different conversational interactions and things like that. So we have them complete that. And once they complete, we code the behaviors. It is not obviously any kind of objective measure, but it's, it's subjective definitely. But anybody who administers the ADOS or the ADIR are trained coders, are trained to complete these assessments. And these are quite expensive trainings that you have to get certified in to complete. And sometimes we even have two coders and then we check for reliability between the coders. And there is a, there is a certain cutoff score that, um, that helps us determine whether the person um, or the child is on the autism spectrum or not. So I would say these, these diagnostic tests are quite reliable, but one cannot escape the chance of um, false positive diagnoses that can sometimes happen. And it's, this especially happens if you have a really young child, if you have like a two-year-old, sometimes the chances are that we may misdiagnose because if there is a communication challenge that the child is demonstrating combined with other developmental challenges, that could mean that the child is on the autism spectrum or that could mean anything else even. So in those situations, we're always cautious. We don't say, okay, your child is autistic and then dismiss it at that point, but we have the parents come in for reevaluations just so we're not making that sort of a false positive diagnosis because development, developmental changes can happen and communication might look like at age two might not be the same at age four, right? So yeah, we try as much to avoid or uh, prevent those false positives from happening, but you know, human error is always there. Segwaying into a different question, for yeah. many, so for many decades, autism has been approached from a more deficit-based model. And with time, we are seeing there's a shift in this focus to a more strength-based model of disability. Mm-hmm. So can you please elaborate more on this? Absolutely. I'd love to. I'm so glad this question is here for us to talk about. Like you said, for a long, long time now, um, we've been referring to autism as autism spectrum disorder. We, as in not just speech-language pathologists, but other healthcare professionals as well, we have been viewing autism as a deficit, as something that needs to be corrected. good example that I can think of is when I used to do diagnostic evaluation several years ago, we used to have a session where we we have a feedback where we complete the evaluation and then have the family come in to discuss the test results. And oftentimes I have noticed not just within this specific scenario, but in multiple scenarios, I've noticed professionals sharing the diagnosis of autism as, as if something terminally ill has happened. It's almost like the end of the world is how we have been announcing this diagnosis. Oh, I'm so sorry, your child is on the autism spectrum. That I think is a very scary way. It scares the parents quite a bit, and I don't think that's helpful at all. So there starts our view of autism as a disease, as a disorder, as a deficit. So I really like this book by Barry Prezant. It's called Uniquely Human. And this book calls out a very important 
concept. One of the diagnostic features um, for autism based on the DSM-5 now is called restricted and repetitive behaviors. And um, he calls this as enthusiasms. I really like that kind of positive label for the same term restricted and repetitive behaviors, which tends to be quite deficit-based in nature. Now, why is this deficit-based model a problem? Why should we even worry about it? When we start viewing autism as a deficit, what we are trying to do or what we're making people believe is that being on the autism spectrum is, is in some form flawed or is a person on the autism spectrum is in some way lesser than a person who is not on the autism spectrum. And that's a very problematic type of thinking. And when we healthcare professionals think that way, the rest of the population is also going to believe what we say. So instead, if we were to shift our lens to looking at autism from a more strength-based perspective, where we believe that autism is, like I said, another form of just a human variation, and that it is a difference in the way a person may communicate, a difference in the way a person may learn or a difference in the way a person may socialize. If we start looking at autism that way, I think our therapies and our intervention would look very, very different. And we would be doing things in a much more respectable fashion. And we won't be going around, you know, trying to control some of the characteristics of autism or trying to fix autistic people and trying to make them look like they're normal. That just hurts the person on the autism spectrum because we're, we are then supporting low self-esteem. We are then having a huge population of individuals on the autism spectrum grow up with just a bad feeling. And I don't think anybody deserves to, to be that way. And it's just not, this deficit model is not just true for autism. I think it's, it's for the entire field of, or the world of disability. Disability itself, I think in our societies is viewed as a lesser form of being human. That is, like I said, a very problematic thought. I completely agree that we do have to change our point of views especially in our South Asian community. I think mm -hmm. as SLPs, we are seen as people of authority. So coming from that authoritative point of view, we mm -hmm. should learn to and assist our patients and their families in changing their thought process as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. So Dr. Santanam, I'm going to go into a different direction now. Okay. Uh, something that we thought that we should focus on. When you see a child on the autism spectrum in your caseload, what are some steps you take or specific areas that you focus on when you're completing your assessment? That being asked, India is a very diverse country and almost every child is exposed to more than one language. If our patient is bilingual or multilingual, how do we take this into consideration during any kind of assessment or evaluation? Oh, wonderful question. When I have a child for assessment, first thing, I spend some time understanding the child's strengths, what the child really enjoys doing, because that really helps me modify my assessment, make the assessment a little more palatable for the child, because an hour-long assessment is hard for anyone, and, mm -hmm. and for a child, it's even harder. So I really try to spend time, you know, learning the child's strengths and what he enjoys, and maybe, you know, making a phone call to the family ahead of time is always helpful. I also make 
make sure that, you know, in addition to assessing the five different subsystems of language, which are semantics, syntax, pragmatics, phonology, and morphology, um, I also spend time assessing nonverbal communication. Like we discussed earlier, communication in a child on the autism spectrum can be quite different from communication for a child who is not autistic. So um, I spend some time looking at nonverbal communication as well. As many communication samples that I can collect, it doesn't have to be a speech sample, but whether it's nonverbal or verbal communication, as much as samples as we can collect, you know, through recordings or in-person sample collection, either one is fine. But from different scenarios, like, you know, maybe one in school, one in daycare, one at home with family members, one with the teacher, one with the friend or a sibling or someone in, in the park or the playground. Different kinds of scenarios will really help. And communication samples with different communication partners is also really helpful, whether it's with the parent or a sibling or a friend or a teacher, like I said. And then I really like to spend some time assessing how parents view their child on the autism spectrum how they understand their child, because autism is not the same in every person. So each child on the autism spectrum or each person can be very, very different. So how do parents understand their child? And I also spend time learning how I can then support this this family or these, um, these parents after my assessment is completed. Now, answering the second part of your question as it relates to the bilingual or multilingual exposure that several children on the autism spectrum are in a situation, especially in India. One thing that I think is very, very important for us as speech language pathologists to understand and believe and propagate is that bilingual or multilingual exposure is not harmful whether the child is typically developing without any kind of developmental challenges, or if the child is on the autism spectrum, it does not matter. Any child can and is capable of learning two or three or four languages or as many languages as you want to expose. We don't have to do weird things like Monday, daddy will talk Hindi, Tuesday, mommy will talk Tamil, you know, doesn't have to be like that. It's, it's, that's a very weird way of doing it. But Whatever languages parents are most comfortable with, even if the parents speak two completely different languages, whatever languages parents are most comfortable with, that is the language that the child needs to listen and hear and be exposed to. We know from research, which is, again, a very minimally studied area of of autism, we know from research that bilingual or multilingual exposure is not harmful for children on the autism spectrum. In fact, a bilingual child on the autism spectrum and a monolingual child on the autism spectrum develop very similarly in terms of communication development. We don't know if bilingual exposure is beneficial for children on the autism spectrum. We do know that it is not harmful. So we need to make sure that parents understand that. One thing that I tell parents always is when you look at like a puppy or a cute doll or something, you know, what language comes to you inherently? Like when you look at a cute puppy, you're you're not going to talk in a language that you're not comfortable with. Or you see a cute baby, you're immediately going to go and use the language that you're most comfortable with. 
it's, it's very unnatural to to pet a puppy or pet a baby or something in a non-native language. So that's what I tell parents. What language do you feel most comfortable with? Use that language with your child. And the child will pick up English outside. When the child goes to school, the child will pick up English. No worries about that. And if you're comfortable speaking in English, go ahead and speak English. If you're comfortable speaking in Hindi or Spanish or French or Kannada or Tamil or Malayalam or whatever, you know, just just speak in the language that that you're comfortable. That is so well put, like uh, speaking and talking to the child in the language that we are most comfortable with. It's so important, not just for the child's language development, but also for the comfort of the parents when they're talking Absolutely. or conversing with their own baby at home. In fact, we also know that when parents speak in their native language to their children, they experience a better sense of emotional bonding with the child. Imagine you spoke to your child in a language that you're not very comfortable with. I cannot imagine talking to my child in Spanish, for example. That'll just feel odd. I wouldn't even feel like that's my kid. I'll feel like it, the kid belongs to somebody else. So I, it's just a very artificial way of doing it. Like I said, most comfortable language is always um, a priority. So a speech language pathologist can help nonverbal children and adults find and use most appropriate means of alternative communication. So for someone, it can be signs. For someone, it can be gestures or an electronic communication device. So as a clinician, when you are working with someone on the spectrum, how do you decide whether a child needs an EAC? Or how do you assess and determine candidacy for an EAC? Wonderful. One thing that we have to clarify is alternative and augmentative communication also can be your cell phone. It can be pretty much anything that you're using as an additional modality to communicate. We know that we have multiple modalities of communication. So speaking is just one of them. And so when I work with a child on the autism spectrum or any child, or I pay attention to how this child is communicating. And my role, I think, as a speech language pathologist is to provide this child a means to communicate. It doesn't have to be a verbal means to communicate, but it has to be some form of communication. So I don't believe that only non-speaking children um, should use an augmentative and alternative communication device or tool. I think all children deserve to have access to multiple modalities that involves gestures, signs, pictures, speaking, writing, texting, painting, whatever method you want to communicate. And I think everybody should be allowed and um, should have access to these methods of communication. So for all children, um, the first thing I do is I try to see what are barriers for this child to communicate and how I can reduce those barriers. That is a first step. And then um, for some children, barriers might be around the type of device or the method that uh, the adults in their environment are enforcing. For some children, it might just be hard to speak for, for a while and they might need to use an alternative modality. And that's completely all right. And I also spend time 
speaking and discussing with the parents the power of communication. Speaking only has a certain amount of power, but communication has a lot, way more power than, than speaking. So I spend time with parents on that. I start out usually with using pictures. One thing I believe is the child needs to understand that communication has power and that communication helps the child to get some things done. It helps the child get what he or she wants. It helps the child make friends. It helps the child engage with other people. The child needs to see the the advantages of being able to communicate. So I make sure that I do that for even even if it takes six months, that's all right. But I spend time engaging with the child and letting the child play around with different communication modalities because the child needs to feel that that he or she enjoys communicating. Does not have to be speaking again, but some form of communication. And once the child begins to do that, I think it's just going to be very easy to get the child's buy-in to use a different or uh, an alternative modality. And we as adults in the environment, whether teachers, special educators, SLPs, parents, we shouldn't be scared of using an AAC, whether it's picture-based or a spoken form, or you know maybe it's a device like a tablet that you're using with different software installed in it. Um, there needs to be no fear or no apprehension. Now, do we all shy away from using our smartphones? We don't, right? We, some of us even have smart TVs. This is just another device. If it's going to help you talk to your child and communicate with your child, they, I know it's harder. It, it's very hard to use it all the time. But I think it's important to make that effort, um, whether it's a teacher or a parent or or anyone else, learning the child's way of communication is also helpful for us. It's just a different way. So that's something that I focus on. Thank you so much. I really like how you said that communication is power. And it doesn't matter what form of communication it is, as long as we are achieving communication. Dr. Santanam, we are almost ready to wrap up. Any final Mm -hmm. thoughts you would like to share with our listeners? Any resources that practicing clinicians or student clinicians can utilize to learn more about autism spectrum disorders and their interventions? I think that we should also learn as SLPs and find resources to support the primary caregivers mm-hmm. of such children, which is their parents. So any resources for them would be great too. Absolutely. So I think what I'll do is I'll share a list with you that you can you know, put together along with your podcast episode. Mm-hmm. I just have some quick kind of tips or pointers here for students or a beginner clinician or someone of that nature. I'll just go over them quickly. And one, I think it's very important to assess where parents are in their journey. Some parents, when they have a child that has been recently diagnosed, can or may experience grief associated with the diagnosis. They may have a different version of a child that they had imagined in their heads. And so 
when they know that their child is not what they imagined the child to be, there can be some amount of grief that parents may experience. Um, that is very, very natural. We, one shouldn't blame parents for, for feeling that way. Um, we have to, on the other hand, empower parents and help parents in learning and understanding their child on the autism spectrum. Saying things like, quit your job, because you have a child on the autism spectrum now is a wrong thing to do. And I've seen a lot of professionals do that. Like I said, in the previous example, that's like telling the family, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, your child is on the autism spectrum. These are all like um, scary ways to, to talk to parents. Parents immediately think that this is the end of the world. They feel like, you know, something completely unwarranted has just happened in their life. And some parents even go to the extent of blaming themselves. There's a lot of guilt associated with it. We shouldn't propagate that. So while parents may experience grief, I think one of the main things that we have to do as professionals is empowering parents, supporting them, helping them understand themselves, their child, and how they can access the different therapies or services and resources that they need. So we have to be that person to help connect them to those resources. The second thing that we can do that we can do immediately right now is stop spreading myths and misconceptions and fear about autism. It is not the end of the world. Three, focus on what the child can do well and build on those strengths. If the child enjoys music, if the child enjoys sports, if the child enjoys toys, whatever the child enjoys. If the child enjoys just cooking, the child can be a huge culinary artist. The child can turn into a chef. Whatever the child enjoys, develop that and focus on that and support parents in developing that. Model how language can be used creatively at home. Model communication. Because communication can happen and ex can exist in every situation in life. We can communicate verbally or nonverbal. Show the parents and model to parents different scenarios where they can use communication and encourage their child to use communication. Um, and finally, I think support parents in gathering their support system. This is easier in India than it is here in the West. Support systems, usually family members are highly supportive in India than it happens here. It's always a hit or a miss sometimes. It doesn't depend on where they live, but but I think friends, family, professionals, other parents of children on the autism spectrum, other social media groups, whatever you can get in terms of support system, gather your support system because you need strength and you need empowerment as a parent. And we as professionals can definitely support with that. Thank you so much for sharing that, how everybody, everybody plays such an important role in the child's care and how they can all contribute in some ways and support the child on the autism spectrum and their family. Thank you so much for your time and being here with us today. We've enjoyed this discussion and we're sure our listeners did as well. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for allowing me to share uh, my thoughts and what little I know about autism and um, the wonderful autistic people that I have worked with and their families. Thank you so much. And just for our listeners, this is part one and we will have part two coming up next. Thanks <laughs> for joining us today. And we are so grateful for all the support we've received and can't wait to see where this podcast goes. Thank you. See you soon.